Jude writes, but you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Saviour be glory, majesty, power and authority. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. The reformer Martin Luther said, History is like a drunk man falling off a horse. No sooner does he fall off one side, then he mounts the horse again and falls off the other side. And I wonder if that's especially true when it comes to church history, if you look at it. So, often the church emphasises one aspect of theology and pushes it and pushes it and pushes it and suddenly you go too far and we fall off and then we correct again and we push it and push it and push it, the pendulum swings back and it's gone again. And we wrestle with these tensions that you find in scripture. God is, God is mighty, powerful, awesome, just, angry with sin, rightly wrathful, And then it swings back again, he's relational, kind and gentle and meek and he's my mate and it'll all be okay. And this pendulum swings back and forth um, for all other kinds of issues as well. And it's a big tension, if you remember, at the heart of the book of Jude. Because do you remember at the very beginning, verse 1, he describes them to whom he is writing as those who are called and loved and kept... And if that's the case, then why is Jude bothering to write them about false teaching anyway? You see, if he calls you, if he loves you, if he'll keep you, then, then why is he bothering to write? It doesn't really matter what you do anyway, does it? Because he's sovereign. He's in charge. How does it work? Maybe we'll get some more of that in the passage when we get there. Do you remember the, the context though? He, he wants to write to them to encourage them with the gospel, um, verse 3. But then he ends up having to write to them to contend for the gospel, to contend for their faith. And that was the sort of stuff we saw in weeks 1 and 2. Fairly introductory, we said Jude, humble, describes himself as a servant of Jesus, a brother of James, even though probably James was the brother of Jesus too. Then he describes people he's writing to was called, loved, kept. But false teachers have come in among them, probably to the church in Ephesus. And these false teachers seem to be perverting grace into a license for sin and then denying Jesus as Lord, either through wrong things they are teaching or through wrong ways they are living. Verses three, sorry, weeks three and four, um, we, we looked at different Language and illustrations and examples that, and metaphors that Jude was using to describe them. 
So he was saying, you can't be complacent. Remember the exodus from Egypt. Remember fallen angels. Remember Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember Michael the archangel. I'm quoting both from scripture, it seems, but also from some kind of extra biblical intertestamental stuff too. We wrestled a bit with that. Um, and then last week, if you remember, he, he describes them in sort of very poetic language. That they promised lots, but they did not deliver. Or at least they did deliver, but what they delivered, these false teachers, were not what you wanted. Because they brought death and judgment. And you reach this week, the end of the letter... And it strikes me that this week is the doing stuff. It also strikes me that I could probably have about five sermons in these five verses. Um, so maybe, if it's half term, some of you maybe spend some time in these five verses in Jude, because there is so much in here to be chewing over, and, and you see in lots of ways that they are the kind of conclusion of various threads through the letter. Um, and I'm just going to have to skate over some of it. Um, full of content, full of encouragement, full of challenge as well. The danger for us is that we can swing off the horse again. Either we are the doing thing of, well, we've got to cram our days full of stuff. We can work and fill each moment. We can make the most of life because the days are short. So let's just cram stuff in because it all really matters. Or then we go the other way and say, well, it's not so much about what we do, it's what he does. Just relax. Just calm down. Just rest. God is sovereign and so he doesn't really mind what we do with our time. He's in charge. He keeps us. Don't worry yourself. Of course it's both. Of course there's a sense in which we have this time we have been given and we want to make the most of it. But of course there's a sense in which he is totally sovereign and totally good and totally in charge. And in one sense doesn't need us but chooses to use us. How do we stop drifting from each extreme? How do we stop flip-flopping in our minds and our hearts each way? It's not an either-or, it's a both-and, obviously. But have a look down with me at verses 20 to 23 and you'll see stuff in there about what we do. And then verse 24 to 25, you'll see it is what God does. Lose either side and you end up in a mess. 20 to 23, what we do. And actually you can divide up these verses, 20 to 23, um, bottom of the page, um, 1, 2, 3, 1, and top of page 1, 2, 3, 2. You can divide that up, it seems to me. In 20 to 21, what might be called even self-help. And then 22 to 23, what we might call others' help. You'll see what we mean when we get there. 2021 self-help. That is, you are centred on the gospel, making sure you are centred on the gospel each day. That is, have you tasted his glorious mercies new every morning for yourself? It's making sure you are a Christian before we then go and help others. It's in the crashing aeroplane and you make sure you put your oxygen mask on first before you're allowed to help your kids. 
It's making sure you're in a fit state to be of use to other people. That seems to be what Jude is getting at. And that is not selfishness or self-centeredness, it seems to me. That is basic Christian living. If you're spending your whole time looking out for other people, which is admirable, but at the expense of looking after yourself and your own relationship with the Lord, then I wonder if we've got things the wrong way round. Of course there's a balance. Of course it's complicated. But it seems to me we need to take care with ourselves. And he gives us four words, four verbs, four imperatives. It's build and pray and keep and wait. In verses 20 to 21, build and pray and keep and wait. So first of all, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. I take it the holy faith hymn essentially means the truths of the gospel about Jesus. That is his death, his burial, his resurrection, the core foundational doctrine that we cannot slip from, that we can't slide away from. Build yourself up in the gospel of Jesus. Grow in the gospel, he says. Partly from the context of Jude, that must at least in part mean that we might guard it or guard ourselves from false teaching. Because you remember the particular key word, key verse in verse 4 from earlier. They have perverted the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. And when you've got that kind of teaching going on, then it's key and vital that you build yourselves up in your most holy faith. I wonder if you've... Um, You've heard the analogy from the banking world. And apparently, the way to spot fake notes for bankers, um, to be able to, the way to tell whether what they're looking at is counterfeit, is to look at thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of correct notes. And they touch them and they flick through them. They look at more and more and more and more and more. Because if they have an eye for the true thing, then they spot when it is false. The counterfeit ones just look wrong, just feel wrong. They are obvious. You can see them a mile off. They know the truth so well, the untruth is obvious. Also here, we're to be a people who build ourselves up in the most holy faith, that when we see something counterfeit, when we hear something counterfeit, it's a... It's obvious. It's it's obvious. Often we might think the way to spot what is counterfeit is to look at those counterfeit things quite a lot and become experts in them. But maybe we need to spend more time thinking through what is true and building ourselves up in that. Um, We've seen it in previous weeks, though. It's not just a question of intellect. I think that building yourself up in your most holy faith is not just a question of getting good doctrine and filling your brain with good stuff, good though that may be. It's more than that. Growing, building yourself up in your most holy faith is letting the gospel increasingly impact who we are. That it doesn't just remain as an intellectual exercise, but actually shape us. I was thinking this week, it's a little bit like a disease. The gospel is a disease, but it does us good. 
It gets everywhere. It infects everything in our lives. It infects our hopes and our dreams and our aspirations and our thoughts and our leisure time and our emotions and our relationships and our our words and our work and our wallet and everything. This gospel disease just comes in and takes over and he becomes, Jesus becomes the boss. He is the one who calls the shots. So we're to to work through what the gospel says and all the little nooks and crannies and darknesses of our lives. So building yourself up, it seems to be a, a lifelong thing as well. This isn't something it seems that you will ever kind of finish. Tick that box, done that one, good, let's move on. The building word is a sort of present tense, ongoing process. It feels a bit like Oxford. It's never quite finished. There are always roadworks. There are always cranes. There are always diggers. It's never quite finished. Well, so, so we're to be those always growing, always changing, never satisfied, always developing, never complacent, building. And it's corporate as well. Did you spot that? Building yourselves in your most holy faith. That is, he's writing to a church. We automatically just think, what does that mean for me? Because we are Western, 21st century. That's our knee jerk. But actually, yourselves is plural. This isn't just a lone ranger solo thing. This is all of us. This is a church thing. This is corporate. This is responsibility to one another. This is what family is about. Helping each other to model, to challenge, to encourage, to apply the gospel. Pointing each other to Christ. I know on a Sunday evening we're a bit smaller, but kind of looking around thinking, oh, I have a responsibility to these people. We don't just kind of rock up to the same place once a week and then depart our separate ways. Or or your home group, whatever it is. We don't just kind of rock up on a Wednesday, do a bit of a Bible study and then pray and then go away. No, we we have a responsibility. We have lives that are interconnected. We love one another. And so we want to build ourselves up. Building is the first one. Uh, The second one is praying. Uh, Verse 20 again. Praying in the Holy Spirit. One book I was reading on this was talking about um, prayer in the Spirit being the kind of prayer when we recognise The world around us is not as it's meant to be. There's this gap between the world as it should be and the world as it is. It's praying that God's will on earth be done as it is in heaven. Praying with his priorities, his heart for people, for ourselves, for situations. Praying into brokenness, praying into sin and suffering. Praying that his kingdom would be extended. And I don't think praying in the spirit there, I don't think that is just something for sort of super spiritual premier Christians. Some have taken it that way. I I take it praying in the spirit primarily, foundationally, is just how Christians pray. We pray to the Father, through the Son, in the spirit. We pray in a Trinitarian way. That just seems to be the biblical model for Christians an open ear and a soft heart to be praying for the kind of things that God cares about. I I don't think it's something sort of super spiritual. I think it is simply praying with God's priorities. It's something, if you've been around for a while at Mordham Road, you'll know that we are aware of, increasingly aware of perhaps, 
um, our, our need to not just know about God, but to know him. And so we've been having things like 24 hours of prayer. Um, there's another one coming up, um, 24th of March, put that in your diary. But it's an opportunity to be praying for um, East Oxford, Oxford, the world, uh, praying for people, praying for opportunities, praying for witness, praying for different individuals within the church and different ministries, praying for mission partners, that kind of stuff. Um, 24th of March, Saturday through to Sunday. Uh, pop that in your diary. I want to say as well, we ought, we, we ought to be those who prioritise praying. Pray when you feel like it. Pray when you don't feel like it. Prayer is not optional, it seems to me. Prayer is the engine room from which we do life the foundation for everything come come on a first Tuesday and prioritise it pray by yourselves, pray in your home groups pray in triplets be those who pray, pray in the spirit that seems to be what God calls us to do but I'm aware in sort of churches like ours whatever that means at times prayer is not something we're very good at building praying Verse 21 then, keep yourselves in God's love. That's a striking verse, isn't it? Keep yourselves in God's love. And our translation um, ties it back to the building and the praying. So the flow of the sentence means that the keep looks back. I think that's probably right if you look at the, um, the original. But what does it mean to, to keep yourselves in God's love? It doesn't mean if you stop building, if you stop praying, then God stops loving. Is that what's, what's going on? We get a bit twitchy, don't we? It all sounds slightly kind of conditional, and we think that we were uh, about grace and that kind of thing. Are we saying we need to we get in by grace, but then on by works? You stay in God's love as you, as you work, as you keep yourselves in his love? Hopefully, No. I hope you agree with me on that one. It seems to me that actually being a Christian is about a relationship with God. And relationships are dynamic. It's an ongoing, trusting, loving type thing. It's an active thing. Relationships are two-sided things. Having a relationship with somebody who doesn't want to know you doesn't work so well. Sometimes um, <coughs> the example is given... <coughs> profoundly relevant example for us in Oxford, but of riding a bike. I don't know if you like to sit at the, um, the traffic lights and you, you watch these kind of clever cyclists with their fixies or whatever it is, and you see them stop and they kind of wobble and wobble and wobble and wobble and they put a foot down. <laughs> um, but to ride a bike, you need to keep moving. That, that's the point. That's how bikes work. And yet he's already told us, verse 1, you are kept remember? Kept for Jesus Christ. And now he's just said, keep yourselves in God's love. How does that work? I take it in one sense, from our perspective, to, to walk away from it is to wobble off the bike. To, to build and to pray is to keep pedalling, to keep moving, to keep relating to God. What are we kept for? We are kept for the future. And so, finally then, we wait. Build, pray, keep, and wait. 
We'll have some more keep in a bit because that comes up in a verse or two. Do you see there as you wait, as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. And again you've got this future hope looking ahead to the time when Jesus will return. And when you know what's coming ahead, when you know what the future holds so you know what matters now, you know what it means to wait. You know where to invest now. You know where to put time and resources and energy and focus now because we are those who wait. Clarity about the future brings clarity about now. We, we thought about it if you were around this morning. There's a question kind of going around that's it, that needs to go around for us. It says, how much does this future dimension of our faith actually shape us? Because we're not great at waiting for things. We're not great at not getting what we want straight away. We're not great at persevering. We're not great at plodding. We're not great at letting that future hope come into daily life. And so a question maybe for this week is to chew through how do we better remind ourselves of the reality to come that it might impact us now. That we might genuinely be those who wait. Of course, brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering, for whom life is hard, for whom there's the reality of the the possibility of death, so their waiting is much more intense, real. For us, because we're pretty comfy, something we lose sight of, maybe get a bit flabby at. This is not it. This is not it. And it looks and it tastes and it feels permanent and we find it alluring. But we are to be a people who wait because this is not it. Striking as well, just in that 20 to 21 there, did you spot we are to be Trinitarian Christians? Did you spot that? It seems to me we are keeping ourselves in God the Father's love. We are praying in the Spirit and we are waiting for Jesus to return. I think you see all three working together there, keeping us going. That's striking. All of God, all three persons, at work in our daily Christian lives. So maybe if you do have some time this week, do chew over those four words. Do chew over the building, the praying, the keeping, and the waiting. Thinking, honestly, bit of a spiritual health check, bit of an MOT, how am I doing in those things? Is the bike moving along? Not to... Not to try and earn God's favour in some sense, but because I love him and because he is good and because I want to be relating well to him. How are we doing in those things? I've found that a challenge this week. I will be joining you in chewing over those words the next few weeks for me on sabbatical. So, do you remember verse 2021? Self-help, oxygen mask on, 
now, 22 to 23 on the next page, now it's time to help other people. Verse 22. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. I, I think Judah's got three groups in mind here. Um, they're very contextual. So if you've been around from previous weeks, you might see some of these folk as we've been referring to them in different places. But there are three lots of people to focus attention on. And it seems to me they increase with intensity as well as you, as you kind of go from one to the next to the next. I think we start off fairly light and by the end it's pretty heavy. So the first, verse 22, is showing mercy to those who doubt. Do you remember verse 2 back at the beginning? We have been given mercy and therefore we are to be those who show mercy. I think these are the guys who are wobbling in church these false teachers have come in. They've heard some of what they've said. And they're not quite sure where they stand now. They're not quite sure what to think about the truth anymore. They've been made to feel uncomfortable. And that's them. And I think the danger can be, our reaction can be, for those of us who love truth, is to kind of do away with heretics once and for all. What do you mean you've given it more than two minutes? What do you mean you've you actually bought the book to read it? Away with you. Be gone, be gone. Be gone to the far-flung reaches of Oxford or something. But it seems to me there's not guilt by association here. Rather, there is patience and mercy shown to those who doubt. Be gentle, be kind, be good to them. Have mercy because you've been shown mercy. Second group of people, verse 23, save others by snatching them from the fire. Now maybe, maybe these are folk who have not just sort of chewed over the truths or lack of truths, this false teaching, but they've started to live out the lie perhaps. They are just getting into the edge of the fire, they're beginning to dabble. Do you remember verse 4? Again, it's a key verse, we've mentioned it week after week after week. God's grace is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. We can't be those who pervert the grace of our God into a license for morality. We can't be those who just say, well, we'll just do what we want because God forgives us and that's okay. But no, we are to snatch those from the fire. Again, I'm thinking here of friends who have a background in Christian things but have wandered away. I'm always struck by looking back at my 20 or so years in various church ministries and thinking of folk who started off well. Do you know, folk who started off, if you like, better than me, they seem to be growing massively. They seem to be the superstars of the future. And yet I look back at a number of them who for different reasons now are nowhere. There was this quick growth and then the plant seemed to wilt and die. It seems to me what Jude is saying here though is that we have to be those who snatch folk from the fire to get back in contact perhaps with friends who have <coughs> been duped, who have drifted, who have lost the plot. 
even this week in preparing this, even the day I was preparing this, there was an old friend on Facebook from a previous church and my radar was twitching some of the questions he was asking. Maybe that's me having to get back in contact and say, um, buddy, let me give you a couple of things to read and think about because I think you're off beam here. So maybe it's a text, maybe it's a phone call, maybe it's a coffee with someone. Those whom we think are too far gone, or they've just turned that way, we want to snatch them back from the fire. And then you get these third group. So be merciful to those who doubt, save others from the fire, and then to others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. Um, Again, mercy is to be shown to this third group. And it's this kind of weird mix of emotions because there's mercy but there's fear and then there's hate as well. And what's going on there? I think if it's right and you you do sort of go up in terms of intensity or um, distance gone if you like, then maybe we've got the fear there because we know they're well in the fire and they have influenced others. The hate comes from I think a reference to Zechariah 3. Um, We won't go there now, but do look it up. I think, actually, there's lots of Zechariah 3, which sits in the background of Judah as a whole. What you see in in Zechariah 3 is you see Joshua wearing filthy clothes, stained clothes, um, because he's been in exile in Babylon, and he is given new clothes to wear. It's a slightly weird passage. But Joshua, or a Joshua, filthy stained clothes, given new clothes to wear. And if it's right, and some of the commentators say it is, that the Zechariah 3 sits at the back of Jude, and particularly verse 23, but elsewhere as well, if that is hinted, then maybe even in Jude writing with these words, maybe even the mercy being shown to these probable false teachers, if that is who is in, in mind in verse 23, then maybe even there's a new start for them as well. He does not say cut them off. He says show them mercy. So verse 20, 21, oxygen mask on. 22, 23, go and help others, says Jude. That is what we do, if you like. There is the focus on the, the church, individuals within the church. But we can't stop there. Because as soon as we kind of think, well, we're fired up, we're going to go out, we're going to text old friends who have drifted off, we're going to go and do this, come on, then we've missed the point. Because he is the one who preserves us. He is the one who keeps us. He is the one who presents us to himself. It is his power and his strength, finally, whom we will look to. And he finishes by pointing us to God. This greater vision, the one whom it's all about. Verse 24 and 25. Familiar verses, perhaps, because we often finish services with them. So if you're thinking, I've heard this before, um, that might be where it's from. Verse 24 and 25. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Saviour be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. These verses are why, as a pastor, I can sleep at night. These verses are why, as our elders, they will let me have a sabbatical for 12 weeks. 
Because it is about him. This is all about him. He is the one who is able to keep. He is the one who will present us before himself. He is sovereign and good. And there have been warnings in Jude, but those warnings help us to remember that he is keeping us. They keep us trusting him. So in the first place, it's a negative to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Isn't that great? Despite false teachers, despite struggling, despite hardships, despite the reality of the Christian life, God keeps you from stumbling. He said we're to keep ourselves in God's love. Now we see he is the one who keeps us. And we struggle with that and we say, how can it be both? How does that work, please? And we fall off the horse each each side. How about this, though? This helps some people. I think there are some weaknesses in it. But I'll try it on you anyway. Here's a quote. Just as the rails of a train track, which run parallel to each other, appear to merge in the distance, so the doctrines of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, which seem separate from each other in this life, will merge in eternity. Our task is not to force their merging in this life, but to keep them in balance and to live accordingly. We don't get it completely now. And there is a mystery to it now, but we don't forget either. We live out both. We can't fall off the horse either side. We pray and build and so keep ourselves in God's love and we trust that he keeps us. It cannot be an either or, it must be a both and. So he keeps them from stumbling. But then he will present you before his glorious presence. It's a positive. When Jesus comes back, final day of judgment, our waiting will be over. And he will keep his children trusting him. So that one day we'll stand before him and see him in all his splendour. We'll see him as good. We will stand in his presence without fault and with great joy. We will not be rejected as we ought to be because of our sin, but accepted because we will share in Christ's faultlessness. That is why we will be without fault. That is why there will be great joy. Because he will present us in his presence because of Christ. Not through our merits. Not through how great we are but because of his kindness and because he is good. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Faultless and great joy. Someone said this, imagine if you can, gathering, collecting, stockpiling all the joy you've felt and seen in others and all the joy you've dreamed of and focusing it in a moment like a magnifying glass, the rays of the sun, But even that is inadequate because this will be a quality of joy we have never known before. God directed, eternal, no cloud will ever blot it out again. He will give us great joy. And then verse 25, and here we finish. This short letter comes to the conclusion with a focus on God our Saviour, Jesus Christ our Lord. He, He finishes by singing. 
reason after reason after reason to worship his glory, his majesty, his power, his authority, that is, his weightiness, his transcendence and kingly rule, his power to get it done, his authority to use that power, his sovereignty. And we worship him. How? Through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's striking. He finishes off reminding us of the eternal nature of Jesus. See that before all ages, now and forevermore? It's as if he's saying, do you know, if you've got Jesus wrong, verse 4, if you've forgotten that he is the uncreated one, with God the Father before the world began, if he is the one who will go on forever, if you've got Jesus wrong, then you've got everything wrong. One final thought as we finish. I've probably gone far too long. Um, it's easy to reach 25 and have the sort of so what factor. The kind of, mm, okay, it's great, but how does this glory of God this majesty, this power, this authority of God, what does it do for me tomorrow? What does it mean at nine o'clock as I head to work or wherever I go or stay in bed? How do we want God's glory to affect our lives, to trickle out from our, us and our lives and into those around us? Um, finishing with a story, a brief story from John Calvin. Um, he so wanted God's glory to affect the lives of those um, Christians in the church, but those outside the church in Geneva as well. He, he locked the church doors during the week. I love that. He knew the place of God's people on Sunday to come and gather and to worship. But during the week, he didn't want them huddling together in church. He wanted them out. He wanted people to take the good news of Jesus, the glory of our God, um, and it for not to be hidden behind church walls, but actually into the normal daily life, the nitty gritty stuff of whatever fills your weeks, to apply this glorious gospel of God to the everyday, every single part of the nooks and crannies and nitty gritty of real living. Let it trickle down into us, but then from us, wherever we'll be this week, so that people might see something of his glory, majesty power, authority let me pray for us Lord Jesus would you give us please a, a greater vision of you that you are our Lord before all ages now and forevermore Father in heaven might we be those who you know what it means that you are able to keep us from stumbling and yet you call us to keep ourselves in your love. Help us to have that, that right sense of your sovereignty, your goodness, your control, your power, your authority and yet to know that what we do matters. That you use people like us that you work in and through people like us. 
Lord, might we metaphorically shut the church doors this week that we might take the message of Christ through what we say and through how we live into the nitty-gritty stuff of normal life. In your son's precious name we pray.